We are going to continue in our series in the book of Romans, as you can see there from your bulletin. If you want to take out your notes and follow along, now that's probably the best way to learn because you get to see it, you get to write it, you get to hear it all at the same time, and it helps you just to maybe recover some of this stuff later in the week and uh, think about it and see if God will use it in your life. Uh, today we're going to talk about biblical love transforms our behavior. Now, the reality is love, according to the scripture we're going to see here today, can transform how we act. You know, we've been going through this the book of Romans, and last week we started chapter 8, and we talked about the first uh, seven verses there, and how uh, we as Christians are to follow uh, and do the things that our government tells us to do, as long as they don't interfere and contradict what God and his word has said. And now when I say Christians, Paul is writing here to the churches in Rome. So he's not writing to the masses, he's writing to those who have already given their lives to Christ by putting their faith and trust in him as their Savior. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, but that's who he's talking to, and he continues on uh, with that thought here in verse 8. And so we're going to read verses 8 through 14, and then we'll come back and we'll take that apart a little bit. All right, let's read verses 8 through 14, and then we'll come back and we'll see what the principles are that God wants to show us here. He writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love do does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we see here four major principles that Paul wants to teach us, and the first one is this. Let love be our greatest obligation. Let love be our greatest obligation. Let's look back at verse 8 again, just this one verse. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now at first glance, that might seem like a financial statement. Owe no one anything. Sounds like we're going to do our day what it's talking about. In fact, that's not a financial statement at all. It's not saying never borrow anything from anyone. It's a statement of proportion. More than anything else in the world, owe love to everybody. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's a similar statement when Jesus talks in Luke 14, 26. Jesus said this, if you remember, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus saying that we had to hate our families if we wanted to follow him? Of course not. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is a, a statement of proportion. He said, listen, you should love everybody, but I know you love your families more. You love your wife and your kids and your parents, and, but you know what? You need to love me even more than that. In fact, your love for me should be so, so great that in comparison to your love for your family, it should look like hate because you love me so much more. Of course, love everybody, but love me even more. That's the same kind of statement that this is right here. 
Paul is saying that whatever we owe anybody, we owe them more love than anything. Wow. If I borrow my neighbor's lawnmower, do I owe it to him to give it back? Because if I don't give it to him, he's going to hate me and sue me or something? No, that's not why I should give it back. I owe it to give him back with probably a gas tank full and the blade sharpened because I love him. See, I owe owe him something because I love him, not because he's going to hate me and sue me if I don't give it back. If we view ourselves as indebted to everyone to show them love, we will act right towards them. Think about that. Do you ever worry about your bills or you know, obsess about them a little bit. You, you sit down with your spouse maybe or just by yourself and you figure out how to pay them all and when to pay them and what to do. You strategize how to, how to do your money right, correct? That's how you do it and that's how we do it. Then we should obsess about how to show love to others. We should be sitting down and figuring out ways to pay our indebtedness of love to others. I mean, think about that. When's the last time you sat down with your spouse and said, hey, you know, we're going to go to this picnic tonight. How can we strategize and show love to everybody we meet? How can we do that tonight? Now, we're gonna, my wife and I sit down and we pull all the bills out and we say, we got to pay these first and this one first and try to save and try to give and try to, you know, we're doing all this stuff. Moving. We do that with our money. Why don't we do that with our love? Do we, is it not important? Is it not as important or more important? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're motivated by love, you'll be strategizing how you can do it. Now, I've been thinking about this this week. I'm going to go to the picnic tonight, and I'm going to meet every single person. Even if I've never met them before, I'm going to meet them. I'm going to try to learn their name. I'm going to try to remember their name and call them by name later in the picnic. I'm going to ask them what they do, and I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions about themselves. And tell them, Instead of telling them about me, I'm going to ask them about them. I'm going to try to give them value. I'm going to strategize on how to show them love because I owe them love. You see, as a Christian, we've been given love in the greatest way. As Christopher mentioned earlier, God gave us his first and best by sending Jesus to die for us. I owe him my first investment, not just to him, but to others. If everyone you knew sent you a bill for love, how would you repay them? Think about that. Okay, Listen, I have, I have never intentionally given the electric company more money than we owe. I've never done it. I've never been benevolent. I've never been gracious. I've never been kind and loving to give them more than what we owe them. We pay them what we owe them. But what if somebody sent me a bill that I owed them love? Would I just pay what they demanded or would I pay more? You see, being motivated by God, we should be motivated to love more. This is what Paul talks about when he says, owe no one anything but to love them. doesn't mean that it's not a financial statement. It has nothing to do with our money. It means look around the room You are indebted to every single person that you can see. You're indebted to show them love. And so we need to be motivated by love. The second thing Paul points out to us is that love fulfills the law of God and the law of man. Now remember, he's just got through telling us that as a Christian, if we are Christians, if we've crossed over that line of faith, 
and put our faith and trust in Jesus, if we are Christians, that we uh, uh, should be doing what the, the government says, as long as it doesn't violate God's law, because God has put them in authority. He's told us this. But look what he says and kind of continues this thought in verses 9 and 10. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul stacks on top of this idea of submitting to the government God's laws. And he mentions four specific ones here. In fact, do not commit adultery, murder, steal, or covet are four of the Ten Commandments. Uh, They've been important to God for a very long time. But instead of saying it in the negative, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, he states it in a positive. He states it in the affirmative. He says, instead of don't do these things, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you won't do any of these things. Don't just be motivated not to do bad stuff to them, but if you're motivated to do good stuff to them and show them love, you don't have time to do the bad stuff. You can't do both the bad stuff and the good stuff at the same time. It doesn't work. Let's work backwards through this list. First, actually last, he says don't covet. Coveting is the desire or the wanting of something of someone else, uh, that someone else has for your own. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, God said it uh, to kind of include everything. He said, don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet his wife. Don't cover his serv- covet his servants. Don't covet his children. Don't cover- covet his animals. He said, basically, don't want anything that somebody else has. By the way, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's a thought. Have you ever, have you ever thought through that? It's a thought. Why is that important? Why is coveting so critical? Well, look what it says in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's saying there's a process here, folks. First you want it. Then you get it. And then it pushes you away from God. It separates you from God. It damages your relationship with God. It says, first you see something, you want it, you desire it, you covet it. I want my neighbor's thing. And then what do we do? We commit some sin to get it because we want it so badly. And then that hurts our relationship with God. There is a process here. By the way, coveting is the act of wanting someone else's. It's not wanting something like it. For instance... Let's say my neighbor buys a new car and he takes me for a ride in it and I just love it. I think it's really cool. I like it so much and I can afford one that I buy one just like it. That's not coveting. I haven't taken anything away from my neighbor. I haven't taken his car. Coveting is while he sleeps at night, I paint it a different color and park it in my driveway and I say, I don't know what happened to yours. Okay, that's coveting or wanting to do that. It's wanting something so badly that I'm willing to, listen, that I'm willing to act in an unloving way to get what I want. Wow. I want it so bad I'll take it away from him. By the way, there's a good deal of sin. In fact, most sin starts with this kind of mind and heart. 
We need to be cautious about this. We need to be thinkful about, uh, think, thoughtful about this. Thinkful. That's a new word. Learned something new today, didn't you? You need to be thoughtful about this, folks. When these kind of ideas come into our head, we've got to realize we've got to stop this process now. Because if we don't stop the process here, it's going to continue on. And by the way, it's easiest to stop at the very beginning. The longer that process goes, the more difficult it is for it to stop. So he talks about coveting. He says stealing. Stealing is a common result of coveting. I want his, so what do I do? I take it. I just take it. I want something that's not mine, I just take it. Murder. Murder is a common result of hatred or greed even. It can be coveting even. By the way, the motive for murder is never love. Now, I've been thinking through this in some kind of uh, uh, situations. If someone breaks into my home to harm my wife or children or grandchildren and I defend them and I commit the act of murder, the Bible would not say that that's murder because murder is specifically the act of taking an innocent life. That life is not innocent and it wouldn't fall under this. I know it gets also a little sticky when we discuss our elderly family members who are suffering. Okay, but murder is taking an innocent life, remember, for no reason, not for no justification, withholding treatment to an, a terminally ill patient or extending their life on machines and then taking it off and all these kind of complications, that's not what it's talking about here. This is the act that I don't like somebody, I hate somebody, they've done nothing wrong and I'm going to take their life. Then the last sin listed, or the first, uh, is committing adultery. Now you might say, well, isn't this one different? What if a woman is trapped in a completely loveless marriage and she finds another man that just loves and values her, who dotes on her, who treats her the way that her husband should treat her, but he just won't? Wouldn't the motive for committing adultery be love? Our society would like to justify it that way, but folks, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You may be able to disguise lust as love, but the motive for committing adultery is always self. It is never love. Never. The reason these sins are listed in a discussion about loving your neighbor is because these are acts of unloving. They're not acts of loving. There are innocent victims in every single circumstance. Wait a minute. Can't two consenting adults choose who they want to be with and love who they want, even if they're married to somebody else? Is committing adultery really unloving? In every situation of adultery, there are plenty of innocent victims, folks. The other spouses, the children, their friends, their church, their testimony, the name of Jesus. Fact is, if we are really motivated by love, we will stay far away from these four sins. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a really good start list. What Paul's saying is, folks, listen, if you're motivated by real love, true, biblical, God-centered love, if that's what motivates your behavior, you're not going to do a lot of these other things. And by the way, remember, Christianity is a replacement process. We don't just stop doing bad stuff because God doesn't want us to and, and live our lives in a void or a vacuum. We don't do that. In fact, when we try to do that, what happens is we get pulled back into those things. They call us back. 
what we do is we stop doing these things and we begin to do something else. We fill that void with being loving, with doing loving things for other people, with choosing I'm just telling you, there is no way that you can do a real act of love for someone and be doing evil to them in the same moment. It does not work. And so Paul's saying here, listen, I can tell you don't do this, 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 but you guys know that. Instead, I'm going to tell you, love everybody and owe them. Show them love like you owe them. And you won't have time or bandwidth to do the bad things. The third thing he teaches us here is that when love grows, we experience morality transformation. When love grows, we experience morality transformation. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul's using a word picture here to explain that our love for our neighbor should grow over time. In the first 12 chapters of this letter, Paul wrote about the fact that Christians are both completely saved and becoming saved at the same time. Here's what he means. He talks about the total depravity of mankind, how we are all sinners, and we can't do anything about our own sin. We can't stop doing it. We can't take it away from us. It is on us. He also talked about God's goodness and God's perfection and how far away we are from him, but that he sent his son Jesus who was a perfect sacrifice and died on the cross to save us. And by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us, not by trying to do some stuff, but because we can now connect with God. In the moment that you put your faith and trust in him, the Bible says that you are completely and totally saved, saved from your sin. What that means is, in the moment before I believed, I lived in darkness, My mind was dark. My heart was dark. But a moment after I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I was full of light. The Holy Spirit had come into me. I was completely and totally and eternally saved. And nothing can change my eternity now, even if I wanted to. I'll spend eternity with Jesus. I did that when I was 12 years old. But he's not only talking about the fact that we were saved completely, but that we are being saved. We are in the process of being saved. What he's talking about there is we're in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Hopefully we're becoming a better reflection of Jesus all the time. So that when I get up in the morning and I take a shower and I fix my hair and I I finally look in the mirror, I look a little more like Jesus every day than Michael. Now I'm not going to wear robes or grow my long beard like Christopher or anything. But it's not our, our, our physical appearance, folks. But when we look at it, if we had a mirror that showed our behavior, if we had a mirror that showed how we interact with others, that mirror should look more like Jesus every single day. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, listen, there, you were once in the darkness. You were once in that place where, where nothing was seen to you. You didn't understand your own spirituality or lack of it. 
Our sins can hide there, folks. But now, he says, you're living in the daylight. We should be walking properly. Not perfect, but moving towards perfection. Certainly more loving. By the way, God is not interested in perfection. He is interested in progress. It's not an excuse to not be perfect, but we won't be able to do that this side of heaven. What is the list of behaviors that characterize our old life before we receive Christ? Did you catch that list? Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Paul's saying, hey folks, if you're still doing any of these, you are still an amateur when it comes to really knowing anything about love. These are topics in the Loving 101 class with Jesus. Okay? We should master these pretty quickly. These are not the weightier issues of love. This is the kindergarten class. Now, I know some people in this room go, oh, yeah, yeah, orgies, I'm not doing that. Sexual immorality, I'm not doing that. Sensuality, I'm not doing that. Quarreling, quarreling, want to talk about that for a minute? Being jealous, having jealousy. You see, when we're jealous, we're not loving. When we're quarreling, we're not loving. When we're promoting sensuality, we're not loving. When we're participating in sexual immorality, we're not loving. When we're getting drunk, we're not loving. When we're participating in orgies, we're not loving. Now, I will tell you that, of course, you know, in Bible days, they didn't have the internet. Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. And so there are probably a lot of things that could make this list that aren't on this list, folks. But if you know Christ at all, we should be well past these, folks. And part of the reason is we're we're closer and closer to meeting him face to face. Now, when I gave my life to Christ at 12, I can tell you that when I was 13, I hadn't mastered being loving all that well yet. I was still learning to you know, be, be obedient to my parents, you know, be obedient to my teachers. I was still in the 101 class. But hopefully, you know, 40 years, 40 some years later, I should have mastered some of this. I should be reflecting Jesus a whole lot better than I used to, as should we all. So let me just tell you, folks, if any of you are struggling with these six areas, go back and read this passage this week. When you struggle with them, when you give in to them, you are not being very loving. And I don't know who you're not being loving to, but you're certainly not being loving to Christ and to yourself. The last thing that Paul wants us to see here is this. Fulfill the call of Christ, not the desires of our flesh. Now, somebody pointed out to me that the, uh, this is one of those points that I changed about 12 times. Uh, fulfill the law of Christ, not the desires of our flesh. Oh, that's the same. Oh, the law of Christ, the call of Christ. It's all the same thing, folks. Be like Jesus instead of yourself, okay? I changed these words about 20 times before I finally come to something, okay? Settle on something. Look at verse 14. Christ, remember he said, throw off these behaviors, cast them away. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, our fleshly desires have not been eliminated because of our relationship with Christ. They don't just magically go away. You don't pray and receive Christ as your Savior and put your faith and trust in him and you, you open your eyes from the prayer and you go, wow, I don't want anything bad anymore. This is awesome. This is great. I wish somebody would have told me this. It doesn't work like that. Now those hopefully get better over time, but our fleshly desires aren't eliminated. But we should put on Christ and with it comes the ability to love with the Holy Spirit's power. So the desires of the flesh don't get our attention. They don't overtake us. This also says, do not make provision for the flesh. What does that mean? How do I do that? Well, let me tell you. I was uh, helping a man one time who was going through some pretty tough things in life. And he said, you know, Michael, I gave my life to Christ a couple of months ago, and I've, I've struggled with alcohol my whole life. And I'm still really battling it, really struggling. I don't seem to be getting any better at all. And he said, I, I, uh, when I come home from work, I drive right by the bar that I used to go to all the time. And I think to myself, I'm just going to stop in and, and see my friends. And I'm just going to have a Coke and, and talk with them a little bit. But I go in and inevitably somebody buys me a beer and I don't want to hurt their feelings. I want to be loving. So I drink that one and, and then another one and another one and another one and another one. And before you know it, I go home completely inebriated. And I don't know what to do, man. I just, every time I drive by that place, it just gets me. I said, well, let's talk about this a minute. Let's, let's figure this out. So where do you live? And pretend that this is a map. He says, I live down here. Okay, and where's your work? Well, my work is up here. Okay, so you go home from work. So where's the bar? I thought he was going to say here. But he said, here? And I'm like, you, you go out of your way to go by the bar before you go home? He goes, well, I've always driven that way because I used to stop there all the time. And so I'm just used to doing that. This is just my habit. So that's how I go home. He's making a provision for the flesh. I said, listen, dude, drive straight home. You won't even go by there. You won't see their cars. You won't know who's there. It'll be a whole lot less difficult for you to give in to, you know, not to give in to temptation. That seems like an easy thing, folks, but how many of us go back to the website that we know is going to send us a place where we can click on something else? How many of us watch a movie that we know, because we've seen it before, we shouldn't be watching? How many of us go back to the things that we shouldn't go back to and make a provision for the flesh? What Paul's saying here, though, folks, is let love motivate you. Let love motivate you. If love is motivating you, you won't go back to these things. This man was having a horrible relationship with his wife because of his drinking. And he couldn't put together in his own mind the fact that the most loving thing he could do for his wife is to just not go by there. Many times, folks, many times our flesh, our emotions, our feelings, they will lead us astray. Think about it. Oh, I didn't want to divorce my wife, but I just fell in love with this woman. And I, I just love her. And my feelings have just overtaken me. Folks, Christians who are motivated by love 
should be able to overcome that flesh and act in love. One of the absolute keys to the Christian life is making decisions based on love and God's word rather than on our feelings. We are not just mere animals, folks. Now, we have this cute little dog. Her name is Chloe. She loves me tremendously. I love her. And uh, uh, something very uh, amazing about Chloe. She can be asleep up on the bed. Julie goes to bed usually before I do. So she'll go to bed upstairs. It's a whole floor above us and uh, the living room and everything. And uh, Chloe will be up there sleeping on the bed with Julie. But if I just, as easy as I can, open that refrigerator door, I hear boom, bum, 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 bum. And she's right there beside me waiting to see what I'm going to eat. She, wants, she, knows, she knows I'm getting a snack. She wants it. Man, I mean, she could be sound asleep, and she, man, she picks up. That instinct drives her. I'm telling you, uh, if that dog only had one leg, she would pull herself down those stairs and right by me in the, next to the refrigerator because she knows I'm getting a snack, and she wants some of it. Folks, we can't live that way. If we know Jesus... We shouldn't live that way. We should live by making decisions according to love and according to God's word. That's a key to living the Christian life. As long as you say, well, I felt that, so I had to do it. Well, I thought that, so I had to do that. Folks, you're never going to be who Jesus wants you to be. You're just never going to do it. Now, we all struggle with that. I get it. But we have to, we have to make progress in this area. We need to reflect Jesus more and our own uh, sensual lives, hearts, less. So today I hope you've been encouraged to practice biblical love because it transforms our behavior. And let me just say this before we go today. If you are here and you say that you're a Christian, you made that decision to follow Christ at some other previous time in your life, and it hasn't changed your behavior, or you're doing some of these things that are mentioned here, and in fact, you're not only doing them, but you have no guilt about it, you have no conviction about it, the Holy Spirit is not uh, telling you to stop, you're not even struggling with it. There's some kind of disconnect in your spiritual life, folks. And you, you need to fix that. We need, we need to help you with that. People who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Listen, when we do some of these stupid things that are unloving, that are so self-motivated, God is just pounding us in our hearts and our heads saying, stop, 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 stop. And if we don't hear that, something is amiss. We need to consider what's happening there. Okay, For those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus, we need to consider growing in love through our relationship with Christ. After everything he's done for us, the least we can kind of do is to wake up, realize that we owe everybody love, and start paying our debts. You would not get, if you decided today, I'm going to stop paying my financial debts, I, I just don't think it's, I just, I just don't like that idea. I'm just going to quit doing it. It would cause you tremendous chaos in your life. Why do we think we can get away with saying, well, the Bible says I owe everybody love, but 
I'm not paying. I'm just not going to pay. Let's pay up. Let's pay what we owe. And that's to love everybody. And you need to put some thought and some strategy behind how to do that. Listen, there are people uh, in the news recently. There have been people who seemed to have it all that are found hanging from a rope. People all around us need to feel loved. People that we think have it all together need somebody to love them. You might be the person that makes a difference in their life if you'll just love them. I'm not, you know, come on. I'm not saying give everything you have away. I'm just saying, listen, go to a picnic tonight and act interested in somebody. Actually, don't act interested. Be interested in somebody. Make a new friend. They may really need to have somebody pay them a debt of love that's owed to them. I want to get better at this. I want to invite you to come along with me and get better at it too. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, and you're trying to do these kind of moralistic things on your own, folks, it's no wonder you're beating your head against the wall. You'll never make progress. You'll never get better on your own. You need God's help. You need his Holy Spirit in you. And you need the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ to make a difference and a change in your heart for you to transform your life. You can't transform your own life. God has to do it. But you have to yield to it. And so I want to encourage you today, before you leave here, make that decision to follow Jesus. Let's pray. For your word that guides us and leads us, as always. God, help us. Uh, forgive us where we have uh, not paid our debts of love to others. Forgive us when we have thought about our own selves and done what pleases us more than what pleases you. God, help us to really live our lives feeling as though we owe everybody a debt because you say we do. You have paid for our sins and we are indebted to you with everything, for everything. And so God, help us to feel indebted to others around us. Help, them, help us to love them the way you love us. And God, even today, help me to show love towards others. Help me to walk through the rest of my day and all, my, all week and the next month and the next year and the rest of my life in a way that I feel indebted to love others. God, increase that. Help me make progress. Help me become a better reflection of Jesus. And help us all encourage one another to do that together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.